No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of the citizens of the United States, declares the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And it continues, Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Now, it sure sounds like the Constitution protects the human right to life in a very particular way there, doesn't it? And yet, as you dive into constitutional law, you quickly find out that these apparently clear and apparently obvious words don't protect life in the way we might expect. Josh Craddock, an affiliated scholar at the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding, joins us to speak about these issues and more. A Washington, D.C.-based attorney, Josh previously clerked for Chief Judge Timothy M. Timkovich, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit, and as a former editor-in-chief of the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. I'm Tom Shakley, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law. I am Tom Shakley, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Josh Craddock. Josh, how are you doing today? Welcome to the show. Tom, thanks for having me on today. It's uh, great to talk to you guys. Absolutely. And we've also got Noah Brent. Hey, guys. You know, this, this is so cool to talk to Josh because he comes with a unique perspective. And I think that what he's going to tell us about his view of the 14th Amendment and how it applies to everyone who cares about the life issue I think that sort of like the original originalists back in the 70s and 80s, I think that Josh's ideas are the sort of the next chapter of uh, life-affirming jurisprudence. Yeah, so Josh, you uh, appeared recently in a great sort of uh, like four or five minute live action feature called the pro-life reply to abortion is a constitutional right. So I guess let's start by talking about that. Tell us about that. Well, the first thing you notice when you look at the Constitution and you hear Roe v. Wade protects the right to an abortion, is you notice that there's no mention of the word abortion or anything about abortion in the Constitution. And even pro-abortion legal scholars like John Hart Ely, uh, he was a former dean of Stanford Law School, people like Larry Tribe, who is pro, you know, advocate of legalized abortion, even people like that recognize that the Roe court, when it found a constitutional right to abortion through the right to privacy and the liberty contained in the 14th Amendment. The right to privacy itself does not also is not actually in the 14th Amendment. It's derived from emanations of penumbras from the other amendments, but from that word liberty. So even pro-abortion scholars like that have recognized that the Roe court was really reaching when it found this constitutional right to abortion and prohibited states from restricting or banning abortion. And so that's been the dominant position for a long time. You know, we've recognized that that is a real stretch. But what I looked at was the original meaning of the 14th Amendment to look and see, well, does the Constitution actually protect the right to life? And are states actually required 
to recognize the humanity and the personhood of the unborn child. And so that was where my research focused. And, you know, going down uh, that path has been an exciting experience. And I'm looking forward to telling you what I found. Yeah. So you wrote in a, in a 2017 public discourse piece uh, that the Constitution already prohibits abortion. And this is kind of what, Noah, you were making the point of an originalist case for prenatal personhood. And I'll quote here just briefly. You write, does the Constitution really only protect walking around persons under an originalist interpretation? Or can one make a compelling originalist rejoinder by examining the original meaning of the term person as used in the 14th Amendment? So I guess let's start just by defining terms. Originalist means... Yeah, an originalist is someone who seeks to interpret the Constitution and and interpret our basic law in the same way that it would have been understood in the in the public original public meaning at the time that it was adopted. So in our constitution adopted, you know, the, the basic constitution in 17, 1789, you've got the first few amendments there in 1791. What did the words that they used at that time mean at the time? What would a person have understood them to mean? And that's still what they mean today. In the same way, the 14th Amendment, which was adopted as one of the post-Civil War Reconstruction Amendments in 1868, when you're interpreting that amendment, you'd look to see, well, what did these words mean? What did people understand them to mean at the time that this language was adopted? And that's basically what originalism is. It's saying that the law that we had uh, that was adopted then, what it meant then is still what it means today. That's powerful. I think, no, I don't know about you. I would just call that common sense, right? You'd think... What does something mean? Look to what people thought it meant. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's a good point. I, I've heard people sort of talk about originalism that it's a little bit democratizing when it comes to thinking about the Constitution because it's saying that you don't need all the tricks. So you can read the Constitution and maybe it just means what it says it means. And especially the way that we think about originalism now, Josh, as you just said it, we're talking about the what, what the public, what the people who the, just the, the normal citizens of the country thought about the text when it was ratified, and those people are just normal people. You know, it's, it's like you, Josh. You're you're a cool lawyer, Harvard man. <laughs> Tom and I, we're just average folks. So it's, <laughs> what what originalism I think tells us is that all three of us can understand what the Constitution means, right? Yeah, I think that's right, and I think your democratizing point is great because you know a lot of the people who created this are lawyers, and sometimes they used terms of art. Uh, but a lot of times they're using terms that have general applicable, you know, ordinary meaning as well. So I think you have to look to legal meaning. You have to look to ordinary meaning. But I think you've got a great point that, you know, it's what people understood it to mean. What the law was then is still the law today. So let's talk for a minute then about a phrase that isn't as obvious, at least to me, which is walking around persons. Yeah. What do we make of that? Well, that phrase- Yeah, that phrase comes from uh, Justice Scalia, one of the greatest jurists of the last century, uh, a personal hero of mine. And he's someone who took a a different position than me on this particular issue. And it was part of what led me to start researching the original meaning of the word person as used in the 14th Amendment. Justice Scalia's position when he was asked about whether the 14th Amendment protects, affirmatively protects the right to life and prohibits states from legalizing abortion, he took the position that, look, the Constitution says nothing about abortion, the point I made earlier. And he further said that I understand the word person to mean walking around persons. I was somewhat puzzled by that because when we, when, When I researched it further, it didn't appear that Justice Scalia in any of his uh, any of his opinion written opinions had delved into the original meaning of the term person. And so it seemed like somewhat of an offhand comment. 
And I wanted to research it more thoroughly into what the actual original meaning of the word person was. So I looked at three strands of evidence. First, I looked at dictionaries of common and legal usage at the time of the 14th Amendment's adoption and how they define the terms person and human being. And I found that they use them interchangeably. Second, I looked at centuries of common law precedent and state practice leading up to the 14th Amendment's adoption in 1868 and found that the unborn were actually considered legal persons. And finally, I looked at the what the authors of the 14th Amendment expected it to do. So what their expected legal application of the amendment was. And of course, that doesn't directly govern the meaning of the text, but it's a good indicia of what the text uh, was interpreted and understood to mean by the public, as we were discussing earlier. And that original expected application demonstrated that informed citizens believe that the 14th Amendment applied to every human being without exception. Josh, those are all great points, and we'll sort of dive into each of them, and you can explain to us what, what you mean by them. But maybe just to go back to Justice Scalia for a minute, and I know you said he's a personal hero of yours, personal hero of mine, awesome guy, uh, really impressive in a lot of ways, but he, he could be wrong on things. Here to to sort of try to channel, I think what he would say to this. Uh, he he he. Had, there's a great talk on Audible that our listeners can go listen to for free. It's an hour talk. If you just type in Scalia on constitutional interpretation, it's a speech of his from 2005. Um, but he dives into this a lot. He brings up abortion specifically, and he doesn't use the walking around person formulation. But he said the reason he says that abortion, like many other issues like uh, homosexuality and privacy and these other issues, should be issues that are in the public sphere, like debated among legislators and not judges. Is that, it, the, the, is that we shouldn't read things into the Constitution where they haven't been before. We can debate what the words of the Constitution meant, but the Constitution never affirmatively prohibited abortion, which is what people who are talking about the Fourth Amendment are seeking to do. So, you, so no matter what we think of the language, you are seeking to do something new with the Constitution, which is not an originalist idea. So I, want, I wonder if you could engage with that for a minute. Yeah, I think you put your finger on two important points. Uh, first, we want to avoid the school of the Constitution says whatever I want it to mean, right? And that's that's incompatible with originalism. It's incompatible with actually what the law is because it's not simply just, you know, the school of constitutional wishes. Uh, you know, if wishes were fishes, sort of whatever we want the Constitution to mean is what it means. We want to avoid that. That, And I think Justice Scalia was very careful to try and avoid that, to not just use originalism to reach res whatever results he wanted. And so I think that's an important caution uh, to avoid. The second thing I think that you put your finger on is that Justice Scalia seems to have been motivated by a understanding of democratic choice theory and that this is something that should be left to the states and worked out through the democratic processes to avoid polarization. And I think that's a political point rather than a specifically legal point, but I think it's an interesting one to engage with because for me, I become very uncomfortable with that formulation because Democratic, first of all, our government is designed to protect minority rights against abuses from the majority is one point. But secondly, I think it's also very eerily reminiscent to some of the arguments that Stephen Douglas made for popular sovereignty. When you look back at the, you know, this Lincoln-Douglas debates and, Link, you know, Stephen Douglas's position was, well, let's let every state decide whether they want to vote it up or down. He said, I look forward to the time when each state shall be allowed to do as it pleases. If it keep, chooses to keep slavery forever, it's not my business, but its own. 
And obviously, Justice Scalia would have taken a personal position. He would hope that any state would oppose abortion and not legalize abortion. But at least from a political perspective, I worry that the democratic choice theory uh, that he presents starts to look eerily reminiscent of Douglas's position. Whereas Lincoln would have said that there's no right to do a wrong. And, you know, look at, you know, obviously we're limited by the actual text and the meaning of the Constitution, but there can be no right for a state to, to legalize abortion, especially when you have written into it uh, the 14th Amendment, this provision that protects the right to life of all persons. Yeah, I really want to underscore some of the, the points you made here in your piece. You know, you spoke to kind of the understanding of things, you know, in the mid-19th century there. Uh, and you say, quote, by the time the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868, the states widely recognized unborn children as persons. Twenty-three states and six territories referred to the fetus as a child in their anti-abortion statutes. Twenty-eight labeled abortion as an offense against the person, quote-unquote, or a functionally equivalent classification. That's powerful, right, to understand that this wasn't just sort of um, a niche issue, right? And in, in a certain sense, these this aspect of the culture war has been with us more or less since the beginning, right? In the in some of these laws dating back to the really the very founding of the Republic in the early 19th century. Yeah, that's right. As soon as the American colonies uh, came into existence, they inherited an English common law that consistently prohibited abortion as soon as life could be detected. You look back at treatise writers like Lord Blackstone and Lord Cook, and the principle that we derive from, they talked about abortion, the principle that we derive from that is that life would be protected as soon as it could be, de uh, as soon as it could be de detected. The principle we derive from that is that life would be protected as soon as it could be detected. So prior, there's a lot of uh, back and forth over the history of quickening. You might be familiar with this. The right. idea of quickening is that as soon as the mother can feel the kicks inside the movement inside the womb. And that was a useful evidentiary tool for determining whether the crime of abortion had occurred, because there was a lot of difficulty in proving that the child was alive prior to quickening and quickly, you know, you had to prove that the child was alive in order to prove the crime of abortion. And so Cook and Blackstone formalized these legal principles that protected prenatal life. And actually, when the embryologists started find out that each human individual begins his or her life cycle at fertilization. That was around in the 1830s. The states rapidly discarded that old quickening standard in favor of the new medically accurate fertilization standard. So for example, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court in 1850 found that quote, the moment the womb is instinct with embryo life and gestation has begun, the crime of abortion may be perpetrated. There was therefore a crime at common law, the crime of abortion. And that's indicative of the national mood at the period. There was also an 1851 case where the Supreme Judicial Court of Maine likewise upheld a statute that discarded that old quickening standard in favor of the new information. So, Tom, you put your finger on this point where there's a movement as new information was discovered to, to consistent with the principle that was always true, that life would be protected as soon as it could be detected and move that even earlier to begin at fertilization because they realized that life began at fertilization. You know, and it's incredible as we follow these debates today because things like uh, quickening, right, are held up actually by activists pushing abortion culture they take exactly the wrong point from it, which is they say, well, sort of, we didn't know at, at a certain point in history, we didn't know when the new life began. And well, we had this period where we defined it at, at the, the moment where we perceived the life. And so they say, taking exactly the wrong point, 
we had arbitrary laws. And so today, you know, we might have ultrasounds and we might be able to take sonograms, uh, but that doesn't mean we can't continue to have arbitrary laws. And so we're in this bizarre situation where they sort of say, let's take the worst evidence we can find to justify the worst outcomes that we can perpetuate. And they also, the pro-abortion people often bring up quickening, I think, for one reason, and that's to confuse people because it's not a word that we use anymore because it's not really like medical right, right. And so it's it's like they, they bring it up. This is a lot of things they do. It's like, you know, a smoke bomb so they can like run across the field without us seeing them. They bring it up to just make people kind of glaze over and be like, well, I don't know what that word means. And they sound pretty <laughs> confident about it. Yeah, yeah and you mentioned all those statutes where they defined abortion as a crime against a person. And I think one particularly striking example comes from the same Ohio legislature that ratified the 14th Amendment, the text that you read at the beginning of this podcast that protects the due process of law and equal protection of the law for all persons within the jurisdiction of the United States. The same Ohio legislature that ratified the 14th Amendment in January 19- 1867 passed legislation criminalizing abortion at all stages, and that was just three months later. So the the committee that reviewed the bill, which was composed of several of the senators who had voted for ratification of the 14th Amendment, they declared in their report that abortion at any stage of existence is child murder. So they weren't mincing words there. That's pretty strong. Yeah, that's pretty direct. It shows shows that abortion was considered to kill a child or a human person. And can you imagine if we used language like that today? Imagine, you know, uh, Mitch McConnell introducing language like that today, and it would be, you know, look how divisive this is. And you say, you know, at a certain point, um, speaking the truth, uh, especially from a medical standpoint, uh, you know, if it's divisive, it's not the problem of the truth tellers. <laughs> you know, it's the problem of the people who can't uh, open their 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 hearts ultimately to hear that truth. I think, you know. Uh, on this point of, you know, looking at these Reconstruction era amendments, the whole point of these was to attempt to stitch together what had become a fractured union. It was to restore unity uh, and, and a common purpose, a common vision to the American people. And so when we look at something like the 14th Amendment, you know, I know um, Carter Sneed at, at Notre Dame has made this point uh, really beautifully, which is that you know, how can you take something that was designed to restore in a legal sense as, as much as really a cultural and societal sense to restore the full status of human beings in society? How can you take an amendment like that, like the 14th Amendment, and then turn it around to say, no, actually, this, this is fine. It, it, it continues to carve out certain segments of human life, of the human family, uh, to say, no, this is less than. I mean, there's really something... You know, it's it's quite literally inhumane just in our approach. And it's it's just crazy, though, when you come face to face with the historical um, origin of this language, of the intent of it. And it it becomes clear. You make this point uh, in your article, Josh. You say, quote, while the intentions of the drafters of the 14th Amendment do not directly govern the meaning of the text, it is worth wondering whether the radically inclusive amendment can reasonably be interpreted to exclude a subset of individuals who were considered human beings at the time it was written. So I think you and Carter are on the same page there. Yeah, and Carter is actually, Professor Sneed is is wonderful, and I think he's echoing a point that Justice Hugo Black made about the 14th Amendment much later, 
where he said the history of the 14th Amendment proves that people were told that its purpose was to protect weak and helpless human beings. And that purpose is entirely consistent with the text. And the text is what, you know, governs obviously the, the, the meaning of the 14th Amendment. But I think that you're right to point out that historical context and the idea of what the, what, what the framers of the 14th Amendment thought they were doing and what they put in the text is radically inconsistent with what the court in Roe v. Wade determined. They totally perverted the meaning of the text to twist it in a way that it was never designed to be twisted. And, and Josh, before we sort of start moving on from the Fourteenth Amendment, I think it's important. Uh, you know, we we have a, some edu- some smart, educated listeners who are engaged in today's issues, but maybe it's been a while since they've been in sort of Civil War history. We've talked about this as a Reconstruction Amendment, so we're talking about this is sort of directly after the Civil War, uh, which was fought over the issue of slavery. And this was a set of amendments, and most people would say, I think maybe the most impactful, important one, meant to sort of rectify the wrong of slavery and give African Americans, uh, and as we're talking about other groups of marginalized people, full rights. Right. So, c- could you could you just talk for maybe one one minute about why the Fourteenth Amendment was passed when it was, and just what what the country was going through and what it was supposed to help us recover? Yeah. Absolutely. So the original Constitution and the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, they only restricted the federal government's activity, right? So states within their level of jurisdiction had what's called the, you know, they had have police powers, they were authorities of general jurisdiction. So in general, the Constitution as originally designed in the 1780s, 1790s, didn't restrict what states could do within their own borders. So then you have the whole issue of slavery that became more and more divided throughout the 1800s and leading up to the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, which was fought you know, primarily over the issue of the whether states could allow, uh, you know, it was fought primarily over the issue of slavery and it, dealt, it involved the issue of whether sl- states could continue to allow slavery within their own borders. And so after, after the Civil War ended, these Reconstruction Amendments were designed to figure out how the structure of federal and state authority was going to work and also to protect individual rights within the states. And so that's a new novel development in our constitutional history where the 14th Amendment actually restricted what states could do. And I think that's important for this discussion because it's actually a limitation on whether states can allow unequal protections for various people groups within their jurisdictions. And so I think that kind of context is really helpful. As you point out, this was, you know, trying to get at issues like extrajudicial killings of African-Americans in the South. It's trying to get at issues of denied uh, human rights, personhood, citizenship to black individuals, but also more broadly to make sure that this sort of thing would never happen again to any marginalized people group within the jurisdiction of a state. That's powerful. Yeah, it's so important to understand this history to make sense of, of where we are now. And, you know, I think as we look, you know, we're coming up on 50 years uh, of Roe v. Wade, of, of abortion culture in America. You know, Americans United for Life was founded in 1971 by people who understood uh, the threat uh, of, of what ultimately became Roe. Uh, the threat to American culture of, of the idea that uh, the vulnerable actually deserve fewer legal protections rather than more, uh, and, the, and the logic of that, that that flows across the spectrum of human rights issues, um, tragically. So, you know, at America's United for Life, we would love to see Roe reversed today, and we would love to see the issue return to the states, return to the people. Um, that alone would be a significant win, but 
Josh, what you seem to be pointing out is that um, we maybe should be thinking more creatively about what the Constitution actually calls for uh, in terms of, of the impact of the 14th Amendment um, properly understood. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, when you look at the overall landscape, you know, there's ways that we're fighting in the trenches in the legal world to try and uh, overturn Roe and Casey. And obviously the, the most natural and probable way that those would be overturned, at least by the current Supreme Court, is to return these issues to the states. But I think that there are, you know, for originalist scholars and for originalist jurists who are looking at, at this issue and considering it carefully, I think there's actually a lot of creative paths forward in how the jurisprudence will develop in the future. We'll continue to follow it. You know, the, we've got uh, the June Medical Services versus Russo case uh, before the Supreme Court now. Um, you know, we had a rally in early March there, along with many other pro-life groups, live action, Students for Life, and many other great groups. And, uh, of course, since the outbreak of the pandemic, so much has changed. Even the Supreme Court's, uh, you know, day-to-day has changed. I saw, I think there was a Wall Street Journal article or something on sort of a, a day in the life of, of a Supreme Court justice under quarantine. Uh, so it's it's fascinating to watch, um, but it's good to see that even a great pot roast recipe. That, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, by, Jess, by Justice Breyer, I think. Have, uh, have either of you guys tried that out in your families yet? I have not. No, we've been doing lots of cooking, but I haven't tried the uh, Justice Breyer pot roast. We should all cook it together on you know, and then, then have a Zoom meeting about it. And then see if we can zoom in Justice Breyer. <laughs> Please, no more Zoom meetings. No more Zoom meetings. <laughs> Um, okay, Josh, so let's shift gears. Uh, you wrote uh, uh, an even more provocative piece where you, you pointed out some of the issues that we've been talking about in terms of, of these issues that have gone through the body politic for generations now. Um, this idea that we're seeing, it seems like, of, of abortion not just as a choice, uh, not just as an option sort of in the market economy that autonomous individuals should be hypothetically free to make uh, as long as there are no negative externalities, which of course there are, um, but we're seeing now the shift to saying, no, abortion is is really a good thing. It's a positive good. You know, we're seeing this, um, you know, I think not just in the form, obviously, of sort of the shout your abortion movement, where there's literally uh, children's books now to celebrate abortion, uh, if there couldn't be a more bizarre thing than that. Uh, but we're also seeing it, I, th- I think, in a softer way in what happened at Planned Parenthood um, with the, the ouster of, of their uh, president, Dr. Leanna Wen. You know, Dr. Wen was not as much of an abortion uh, extremist, I think, as, as their board of directors or as other internal staff maybe would have liked to see. She tried to shift the organization to say, you know, maybe we should try to become a comprehensive health care provider and not just focus on abortion. And the result of that perspective was that she was shown the exit after fewer than nine months uh, as president. So I think, you know, this shift is underway broadly from Planned Parenthood on down, and then also in the culture generally that says, no, you know, if we're going to protect the abortion right, we've got to embrace it. We've got to say it's not just a choice. It's not just a neutral thing. It's really uh, a positive thing. Help us understand that. Yeah, I think you put your your finger on an interesting trend. And I mean, we all remember back in the 90s, the safe, legal and rare mantra that was that was never true at the time. But at least that was the rhetoric. Right. And a lot of people believe that 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 was really what abortion you know, it was a tragic necessity. It was it was something that we we shouldn't, you know, celebrate, but, you know, we need to have legal. A lot of people truly believe that, even though, you know, from the top, we know that that was kind of cynical from the beginning. But I think one thing that we've seen culturally is this move toward celebrating abortion as something that you said is positive. 
And, you know, you see that in lots of different forms, the more extreme forms, you know, Miley Cyrus would be abortion is good cake. Uh, That's right. Yeah. Abortion is healthcare. Yeah, exactly. The the abortion is healthcare cake. You have, uh, you know, Tulsi Gabbard, when she gave the safe, legal and rare uh, position in a recent Democratic debate, she was lambasted by the media and commentators as being out of touch and, and, you know, not extreme enough on abortion. And so I think that cultural trend is really interesting because it also parallels some of the issues that we've been talking about with leading up to the Civil War, where when our country was first founded, a lot of the people such as you know Thomas Jefferson believed that slavery was in some way a necessary evil, a temporary thing that we had to you know make it we had to make a bargain with slavery to create the nation, but that you know they hoped that slavery would be extirpated eventually. And yet what we saw between, you know, the 1790s and then going into the 1830s and 40s was that messaging changed. And what changed was that people began to view slavery as actually a positive good. So you have people like John C. Calhoun actually calling it a positive good instead of an evil. And you have uh, Alexander Stevens calling slavery the cornerstone of the Confederacy as something that's actually you know, the, the foundation of Southern civilization is, is how he described it. And so I think it's an interesting parallel because in both cases, you have something that originally is treated as a necessary evil, then tra- morphing into this positive good. And that reinvention ha- it happens because it's, it's totally incompatible with the American creed, right? The American creed is that, you know, all men are created equal, mm-hmm. as is put in the Declaration of Independence. And American republicanism presupposes the existence of natural and unalienable rights that human beings possess just because we're human. And slavery, just like abortion, can only flourish as long as a certain people group, whether it's blacks or the unborn child, is considered outside that moral community of persons where it doesn't, they don't count when it comes to all men are created equal. That's such a fantastic point, Josh. You know, the way I've sometimes thought thought about it with sort of the slavery in the founding of America and then the way slavery changed, uh, especially right before the Civil War and, of course, during it, is, you know, Jefferson was was a hypocrite, right? He was. He he wrote the Declaration of Independence and he owned hundreds of slaves and did not hold up to the ideals that he sort of uh, espoused to our nation. So he was a hypocrite. But Calhoun was evil. You know what I mean? There's 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 a big difference between doing something and 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 then saying that ah, I think it's wrong. And, you know, I'm sort of in this situation. Oh, I don't know. And, and, and otherwise be like, this is the way the world should be organized. And this is a great thing. Even if you look at the Constitutional Convention, the debates, a lot of the Virginia delegation who all, all of them own slaves, George Washington, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, they were all they it was still a more moderate position though like they were they were for banning the transatlantic slave trade from the beginning there for other things then you had delegates from other slaveholding states like south carolina who even in the beginning had a little bit more of an extreme position that slavery was not sort of a bridge to something else that we're going to get rid of it is a great thing and you used to even so people like Leanna Wynn, in the way she speaks, she talks a lot about birth control and other things to where she kind of talks like abortion is a bridge to like a woman just completely controlling when she gets pregnant. Like I don't, you know, smile every time there's an abortion. 
But you listen to someone else like Cecile Richards, the president of Planned Parenthood before her, or other abortion advocates now, that is not what they're talking about. Abortion is empowering. Abortion is, is the fullness of a woman. Abortion is what we should be aiming for. It's an exercise of our full freedoms. It's completely like you said. It's, 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 it's John Cal, it's Calhoun. Not Jefferson. We're like a half step away from hearing, you know, uh, NARAL or some group just come out with a campaign that's like, you haven't lived until you've had an abortion. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised to see that in the next few years. Yeah, how ironic would that be? And I think it's important to note that, you know, it doesn't justify the necessary evil position. You know, we know that, you know, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, as they understood important truths about what it meant to when Thomas Jefferson wrote, all men are created equal. That aspiration is important and it's the foundation that underlies our country. Obviously, it doesn't justify, you know, the owning of slaves at that time. But I think there is an important difference in, in the way that you've, you know, that you've pointed out here uh, between that a necessary evil position and the positive good position. And I think it's important to call attention to that. There was a, uh, a recent clip I saw from uh, Kristen Hawkins at Students for Life. She was uh, at Villanova uh, in Philly, and she was speaking, you know, on human rights issues. And during the Q&A, uh, she got into an exchange with uh, a girl, uh, undergrad, um, you know, proudly wearing her Villanova shirt. And Villanova is a Catholic university. Uh, and, you know, Kristen was making this point, basically, which is she, she was trying to sum up uh, the undergrad's argument in, in saying, so you're essentially saying that as long as, as the human person, as long as the child is in your body, you should be able to do whatever you want with it, uh, dispose of it or give birth to it, you know, um, because it's sort of your property. And, uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing. And then the, the undergrad responds and she starts to try to equivocate and then she cuts herself off and she says, well, yeah, actually, that is basically what I'm saying. And wow. it was a powerful moment. I think in a certain sense, I was really actually grateful for that exchange. And I was grateful for uh, the honesty of, of that student um, because it's like, yes, if, if we're going to actually advance this argument to some conclusion, some resolution, so that we don't continue to have multiple centuries of culture war on the issue of the human right to life, we've got to come to that place where both sides are at least able to say, yeah, that is basically what I'm saying. I wonder if we're going to see more of that. I don't know. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether, you know, the, the deception and lies about abortion have been so common and widespread. It's interesting to see people just admit and be like, yeah, I am treating a person like property or yeah, it is killing. It yeah. is killing a human. You know, so it is it is shocking when those moments happen. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see as we go forward, whether those moments become more common. Yeah, I think this this point that both you're that that you're both making, Josh and Noah, about the difference between sort of having to accept an injustice versus intentionally, personally, socially making the choice to embrace injustice. Huge, huge distinction there, and I think, uh, especially for our lawmakers, you know, whatever you're, you know, whether you're, you're you believe that uh, the laws are are primarily made by judges or by lawmakers. Uh, you know, the lawmakers have a greater responsibility to step up and to recognize that, you know, Congress uh, on the federal level, um, but also on the state level, uh, that there's a, a, an important place for lawmakers to stand up and, and push and push, right? At a certain point, I think there can be a, a sort of a spirit of acquiescence 
on these issues because uh, we sort of we look to things like the Supreme Court itself and we say, ah, you know, it sure seems deadlocked. You know, we're going to get another five four case where we're not really sure how things are going to come down, and it can lead to a spirit maybe in in states that says. Uh, you know, maybe we shouldn't push on a particular aspect of a particular issue, whether that's abortion, whether it's assisted suicide, whether it's something in between. And I think it's important to say uh, at a certain point, yes, it can be prudent, it can be wise to make those judgments about when is the right moment to push, uh, when is the right moment to try to, to make a, a truth claim that, that appeals and tugs at the hearts of, of, of our fellow citizens. Um, but it's also important to, to say, are we making the choice to embrace injustice or making the choice to merely tolerate it until the right moment? I don't know that that question is is fully drawn out as much as it could be. I'm so glad you brought that up because let's not forget that Congress is the legislative branch. And we've been talking a lot about Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, the, the, the section that has the Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process of Law Clause. But actually, Section 5 of the 14th Amendment empowers Congress to enforce by appropriate legislation the Constitution's protections for persons. So they could pass a law and use that enforcement power to push the envelope to do something like, you know, recognize that the 14th Amendment guarantees the right to life to unborn persons, that guarantees the equal protection of the laws to unborn persons in every state. And states, states retain their primary duty to protect the inalienable life of human beings within their jurisdictions. States have a responsibility to exercise what we call the police powers, the powers to promote public health, safety, and morals, to prohibit abortion. So I think state governors and legislators and our federal legislators could do, should do everything in their power to uphold the rights that are guaranteed by the 14th Amendment and in the United States Constitution. Let's not forget that these constitutional officers swear a, an oath to uphold the Constitution. And part of swearing that oath, if you under if you actually agree with you know this position that the Constitution guarantees equal protection of the laws to the unborn, then that oath has to mean something and it has to lead to action. I think we're seeing this uh, in a particular way as we live through this time of pandemic as well, uh, trying to figure out on the state level, you know, we're almost watching ourselves in the mirror kind of rediscover, the fact that this is a federalist system, um, because I think there's a sort of a discomfort. Yeah, and this this is bipartisan. It's I don't think it's a, a thing on the right or the left exclusively. There's a certain instinct in us, I think, where we're looking to Washington and we're saying, you know, the president, the Congress, uh, you know, should be doing more for us in the states. Um, where, as I think our traditional instinct as Americans would have been to say, let's look to our mayor our governor, um, you know, the state itself, and then the federal government. Uh, in the old days, maybe it was more common sense to do that because, you know, you're talking sometimes literally about like weeks before, you know, the train can get in from wherever the depot is that has the supplies you need, whereas today everything can be kind of airlifted. But I think it's still a, a good impulse to try to bring that back uh, and to recognize that our our duties, our responsibilities, you know, when we talk about rights, we're also talking about responsibilities and those things have to be brought out in person, even though, you know, we're social distancing, these things are still person to person. And that has to happen first on the local level. And so it's like if we're trying to get um, a greater spirit of courage on some of these issues, either uh, locally in the states uh, or on the federal level, um, it starts by, by coming together in person again to sort of uh, to have those conversations and to recognize how do we do this together 
in a system that isn't just um, you know, uh, totally, totally driven by sort of an imperial capital, but is is done amongst equal citizens. Yeah, I, I totally agree, and I love I love to see when governors or the people or the legislatures within the states are working to recognize you know the personhood of the unborn, uh, through, whether it's through legislation or ballot initiatives or constitutional amendments to their state constitutions, whatever it is. I love to see that energy happen. And I think it really pushes the public, in addition to pushing the law, I think it changes public opinion. And so I think that court of public opinion is really important, provides a space for these conversations about, well, don't our laws treat unborn children as property rather than persons? And having that conversation when you're pushing these, you know, whether it's a local initiative or what, it's, I think that's so important. It's crazy to think, too, as we come up on the 50th anniversary of, of Roe and, you know, the continuing March for Life in Washington. You know, we've talked with Alexander DeSanctis. You know, it's, it's our hope, I think, that even when Roe is ultimately reversed, we can still see March for Life because the human right, um, you know, to life is always going to be in question so long as they're human beings because we're always having difficulty kind of figuring out what does that mean in practice. And so I think at minimum there's always going to be a need to witness um, but it's, it is crazy to think in a certain sense that, you know, like a sign, um, you know, being held up at the march or, or, you know, a marketing campaign or something that was to the effect of, you know, persons, not property. That's actually still, unfortunately, an applicable public call, right, on the moral yeah. conscience. It's crazy. So it's, it's one of these when we, when we sort of pat ourselves on the back and we think uh, how, how, how advanced, how progressive, how enlightened we are today because we live in this particular moment to some degree, the pandemic, I think, is humbling us um, as we deal with this, you know, what we've been hearing is this invisible enemy. Um, but it's also a reminder to say that some of these core human rights issues, they don't ever go away. They have to be, you know, it's like Reagan says, it's, you know, liberty is only ever a generation away from extinction, which means that it's it's passed on from generation to generation or it's lost. Josh, you, you, you've given us all a lot to think about, about, I think, something that pro-lifers you know, is, is it on the front of our mind? We think about overturning Roe v. Wade. We think about passing state legislation, which are important things that I know you agree with. But this 14th Amendment point is uh, is really good. And I think that there is a cause for hope, right? Because right now it seems like we might be in a place where being pro-life is kind of a partisan issue. But it really hasn't always been that way. There's been a lot of times in American history, uh, especially, I mean, for the first two centuries, almost everyone, I think, was pro-life. And even throughout most of the 20th century, there's a lot of bipartisan consensus around it. There were great pro-life Democrats, Robert Casey, uh, you know, the recently defeated Illinois Congressman Dan Lipinski, uh, who is really a contemporary hero of the movement. And we are sad to see to see his loss. And I hope I hope it's galvanizing for pro-life Democrats across the country. But, you know, Kristen Day and her little rebel alliance of Democrats for life are fighting <laughs> against the empire of Planned Parenthood which does seem to have a stranglehold over so many facets of the Democratic Party. But there is still a fight to be had. Is, is, tell, tell us about the hope that we can have, Josh, among, on sort of the legal side, and maybe if you have any, anything, any political hope for us as well. Well, I think one of the great reasons for hope is that our, our cause is true. Our cause is true, and we know that in the end, life will win. And so I think that that's a cause for hope. I think that the... Uh, the the truth about the human person that our constitution protects every person within its jurisdiction is also a cause for hope because 
you know, we, we're working, we're always working within the strictures of the present, but I think that the, the future is a lot more malleable than a lot of people suppose. And so moving the Overton window of what the window of the possible is, is so important. And that happens through social movements. It happens through uh, politics, of course, but politics is often a driver of the conversations that we were talking about. And so when we're pushing the envelope with politics or legislation or court cases, I think what we're seeing is we're able to move the court of public opinion and we're able to move the Overton window of what's possible to change what can we can do in the future. And so I think the possibilities are endless. And I think that we shouldn't get mired in the walls that we have around us right now in terms of Casey and undue burden tests and, you know, those legal strictures that lawyers love to talk about and to, to you know, obsess over. Uh, I think having a big picture view about what the future could hold is a cause for hope. And ultimately, we will win because we're on the right side. We're on the side of life. Truth is greater than precedent. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful way to look at it. Josh, you've had a really incredible sort of personal journey. You know, your, your story is really impressive. Uh, you went to Harvard Law School. You held a lot of prominent positions there and, and excelled. What was it like, you know, being visibly, visibly and vocally pro-life there? It, I, it, I think most people think about it, might think it's a somewhat hostile place to, uh, to a pro-life idea. Well, I wouldn't have been able to get through it without a few close friends who uh, were able to encourage me and, you know, we were able to hold each other accountable. Uh, I, I Just to give you one anecdote, there was a period of uh, student protests uh, during my first year at law school. And so there was a sit-in in our in our student lounge. And among one of the things that the, the protesters did was they set up a wall of sticky notes that said what Harvard should do, what they should uh, start doing, and what they should stop doing. And uh, I, I put a very a, effective form of protest. <laughs> I, I put a sticky note on the sticky note wall saying that Harvard should stop funding abortion in student health plans. And of course, I, I put it up there on my way to class. I came back out of class <laughs> and it was gone. So I put it back. I, I wrote a new one and put it back up there. I think I did that seven times. And uh, and finally, <laughs> the person or people who kept taking off my sticky note finally just got so upset that I kept putting it back up there. They surrounded it with these other angry sticky notes. They were like, no, you're terrible and all this stuff. But, you know, it, it, I wasn't discouraged by that. And it actually motivated me more uh, to, to be vocal about this issue. And so I ended up writing uh, an article in the Harvard Law Record, which is basically the Harvard Law School student newspaper about uh, pro-life issues and how basically the least safe, you know, we talk about safe spaces on, on campuses. Well, actually, the least safe space is in a, a womb of a, of a woman who's trying to decide mm. whether or not to have an abortion. That's awesome. And so talking about, you know, how we can protect women women, how we can protect unborn children, uh, being vocal about that. It actually just galvanized me more. So it was a hostile place in some ways, but, uh, you know, made it through with the, the help of a few friends. That's awesome. It, it is or was, at least when you were there, was there more intellectual diversity on the life issue than someone from the outside might think, or is it pretty monolithically pro-abortion? I would say people are actually open, a lot, a lot of people. So I give that example of the people you know, who are angry and taking down sticky notes. But I would say that represents maybe sort of the hardcore uh, wing of the student body. But I would say the vast majority of people were actually pretty open to talking about life issues, of talking about abortion, and were willing to engage with these questions and actually in a very intellectually honest way. So I was actually very happy to see that. And so 
I don't think that the the angry, you know, galvanized side. Well, I saw of that somebody share something recently. It was uh, a clip of, uh, of a transcript from uh, some of the Nixon tapes, and it was like Nixon speaking with uh, Henry Kissinger, and Nixon was going on, uh, kind of, you know, about about the danger of the elites, and he, you know, he was said he repeated like four or five times in this in this conversation with uh, with Kissinger. He said, "Never trust the professors. Never trust the professors. Never trust the professors." And I read that and I thought to myself, you know, I'm thinking of that in light of your, your comments, Josh, about the, the Harvard Law School protests. If, if some of the protesters at some of our elite universities knew that they were agreeing basically with Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, I wonder if that might change their minds somewhat. I don't know. And just for our listeners to have an idea what Tom means by he was listening to Nixon tapes and he sort of got <laughs> the eight tracks and was putting them on his, you know, old, his, his Fender sound system, blasting him through his, uh, his Georgetown apartment. That's right. <laughs> So, uh, Josh, you're uh, affiliated with the James Wilson Institute. Uh, we've spoken with Hadley Arcus uh, on the program. We'll talk about him in a minute, but uh, tell us about that experience. Yeah, uh, Professor Arcus is wonderful, uh, a hero of the pro-life movement as well. Uh, I participated in the James Wilson Fellowship the past this past summer, and it was just an excellent opportunity to talk to uh, scholars who are serious about natural law, understanding how natural law works within our constitutional system, and uh, the, the quality of the, the other fellows and the faculty was just a real, a real treat to be able to spend a week talking about issues, you know, looking back at how Lincoln dealt with natural law and the Constitution, looking back at how the founders viewed those issues. And so it was a great experience. I recommend it to uh, law students who are interested. Uh, definitely apply for the James Wilson Fellowship. And uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful experience. And so I got more involved th through that and then uh, became an affiliated scholar. And my scholarship, as, as you can tell, uh, primarily focuses on uh, the issue of abortion and, and the right to life. And uh, it's been great working with Professor Arkes and, and the rest of the faculty on, on a variety of natural law issues. You know, one of How the Arkes is an American treasure. He is. I, I'm just full stop. I'm American treasure. <laughs> we the only the only time I've got to interact with him was two hours sitting down in person to record this this same podcast. You're on with us now, Josh. And oh my gosh, wow! It was it was something else. I cannot imagine sort of getting to fellowship with him for months at a time and like to sort of be lectured by him and everything. Uh, so you know, any any of our listeners who has haven't listened to Hadley Arcus episode of ours, listen to that episode and then Google Hadley Arcus and, and look li like watch every YouTube video of his. Do you do you have any <laughs> Hadley Arcus isms or an anecdote about about the great Hadley Arcus we can hear? He is a great American. He is always quick with a joke or a light up your smoke. He I I, I can't even tell you like he has so many jokes his repertoire is just <laughs> off the chain uh I, I can't i have to i have to write him down because he's always got a, a good quip that should be a book project for you josh it's sort of like organizing <laughs> hadley arcasisms i'd buy it <laughs> there you go so one of the things we didn't talk about with hadley this was a, a real deficit of that earlier conversation we should correct now which is josh Tell us a little bit about James Wilson, I think one of the, the lesser known uh, of the founders. James Wilson gave this influ influential series of lectures called uh, Lectures on Law. George and Martha Washington were in attendance, as well as a lot of uh, early notables from the American Republic. And he really wanted to become an American Blackstone, a treatise writer, laying out his theory of how the English common law had been incorporated into the American system with our written constitution and uh different form of government. He had an interesting life. He eventually became an associate justice of the Supreme Court in 1789. 
he was also a professor of law at the College of Philadelphia. But then kind of toward the end of his career, he had some interesting events. He ran into a lot of financial troubles with uh, land speculation, uh, ended up in debtor's prison while a sitting Supreme Court justice for a while, and then eventually wow. died on the run from his creditors. Uh, so he had, a, he had an interesting, colorful life, knew a lot about the law, and unfortunately ran into some financial problems, but left a lasting legacy on how we think about the law and was an influential, he was very influential at the Constitutional Convention and ratification debates. So wow. def- definitely a guy to learn more about. I, the last time I was at a Chinese restaurant, my fortune, my fortune cookie said that I will die on the run from my debtors after going to my dentist prison. <laughs> so good to all be a good company. The question is whether you make it as high as the uh, Supreme Court seat there, Noah. The answer to that is no. It won't. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's great. I know. Uh, you know, I looked up the other day. Uh, the the collected works of James Wilson are available online, uh, very reasonably priced. It's like twelve hundred, thirteen hundred pages. If you go to uh, libertyfund.org, and I, I made uh, I made an order for that last week. So it's a it's a two volume set, um, twenty four bucks, very reasonable. Um, so I'm, I'm eager to find out more about James Wilson. Um, you know, the founders in general. Um, such such a rich rich collection of people um you know fellowship uh really that we can learn a lot from because like their stories are the same today you know how many how many people have the same problems maybe not as as literally colorful or or as exciting as being on the run from your creditors we don't have debtors prisons anymore but you know we have cancel culture we have public shaming things are still bad that's right that's right (laughs) it was was cool that you spent 24 bucks on that time i know that could have bought you thousands of pieces of pity candy (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know, I got to have something to read here in quarantine, though. All right, Josh. So something we do every show is our shot of gratitude. We just share something that we're grateful for. So I'll start off, you know, I'm really grateful to be able to talk about the founders in particular. I think, you know, I I grew up uh, outside of Philadelphia. I grew up in Pennsylvania and was fortunate to be around a lot of historic places, you know, uh, Valley Forge, not too far away, Uh, the city of Philadelphia itself, not far away, the Liberty Bell, um, you know, Washington's Crossing, uh, places that that I read about growing up in school um, that that were part of American history, but also were close uh, places I could visit, and that was really really a really cool thing. Josh, how about you? What's something you're grateful for? I'm grateful for uh, good health right now. Uh, obviously, in this time of pandemic, you know we're all thinking of those who are sick, and so uh, thankful for for good health, and you know obviously praying for those who have been uh, struck with this coronavirus. And I'm also just grateful that we've done, you know, 45 minutes, almost an hour here. And uh, my two kids, I'm working from home right now. My two kids <laughs> have not run in and interrupted the interview. So they've been very good. I want to be thankful for them as well. They would be very welcome, though, if they did interrupt, because we believe in a very strong pro-life culture. Noah, how are about they, you? Are they, available, are they available for next week's podcast, Josh? <laughs> we them, uh, listen, Tom, you know, I'm thankful for something even more American than Valley Forge. Uh, and that is, you know, Major League Baseball. There is a crazy plan right now to reopen Major League Baseball at the end of May, uh, which would involve all of the teams in Arizona and shuttling directly from hotels to uh, the baseball stadiums and playing double headers in the 105 degree heat. And I don't care. I just want baseball back. <laughs> so give us the give me the crazy plan and give me some uh, give me some baseball to watch. So I'm, I'm thankful that we might get baseball a little bit earlier than we thought. All right, Josh, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about some of these issues. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Noah. 
you can go find Josh's full paper. The full thing is, is important to read, important to understand for these human rights issues. The Constitution Already Prohibits Abortion is the name of the public discourse piece. We'll link to that with this episode. Uh, but Josh's full paper is 40, 50 pages and really goes into the history and, and import of this. So check it out. All right, if you enjoyed the show today, go give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, wherever you listen. Rate the show and leave a review. Message somebody. Let them know you've discovered the show. Let them know you're listening. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, drop us an email at life at aul.org. I am Tom Shakely, and until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.